Aloha, welcome to the Big Dream School Podcast, where we explore the art, science, and soul of rocking your dreams. I'm your very grateful host, DJ Valerie B. Love. Inhale. Doesn't that just feel awesome? All right, let's rock this. Aloha, love tribe. So guess what? We have a creative genius that said yes to our show. And I'm so excited for you to get to spend some time with my dear friend. And you know, those people who just have like so much creativity and so much talent and enthusiasm and passion and commitment and drive just in their pinky finger. Well, this is that guy. And I can't wait for you to drop in with us on this really, really special interview. So my beautiful friend is working on a project with Matt Damon Ben Affleck and Kevin Bacon for Showtime. It's called City on a Hill. And my friend is a 28-year industry veteran. He is a writer, a producer, an actor, the guy who makes things happen. Boom. (laughs) Some people call him James Michael Cummings, but I like to call him JC. And he is a force to be reckoned with. He has been a part of many, many productions, the Baker Boys, Inside the Surge, Workaholics, The Sixth Sense, and many, 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 many more that I'm going to include in our show notes. So you can check my buddy JC out. So he's also a total badass. And he wrote a movie called Southie and produced it. And he and co-starred in it. And it was with Donnie Wahlberg and Amanda Peet. The dude is like unstoppable. And so this wonderful podcast talks about the journey of an artist and the journey of a big dreamer from a young age and how things can go sideways when we start getting over overwhelmed with the fame, with the power, with the money, with the substances and how surrounding ourselves with the people who see our genius and who won't put up with anything less than that and call us out. That's what this story is going to share with you. And so JC talks about his journey from being a little dreamer as a child to executing and making this happen for himself on the planet as an artist and as an actor. And in addition to that, he is a massive philanthropist and he is the co-founder of a wonderful foundation called Journey Forward. And this foundation is dedicated to bettering the lives of those suffering from paralysis and spinal cord injuries. So my friend JC, his brother Dan was involved in an accident and he broke his neck and was not, he was diagnosed with not ever being able to walk. Well, guess what? Because of this organization and because they believed and because they took the action behind their belief, Dan now is able to walk. And holy cow, right? That's amazing. And it's a magical journey. And so this interview is so special to my heart. And I'm so grateful that JC and his massively busy, busy schedule took time to be with us here at the Big Dream School. So listen up and just get lit up. Listen up and light up, baby, because this is a good one. So without further ado, I am so grateful and honored to share this podcast with you. Aloha. 
All right, we are live. Okay. All right, love tribe, aloha. This is DJ Valerie Belove, and I am here live with JC, James Michael Cummings. So, my friend James, JC, as I love to call him, is a creative artist, an actor, a producer, a writer, a philanthropist, a CEO, and I like to call him a badass. So, he is a sweetheart of a friend, and he has agreed graciously to spend some time with us here on the Big Dream School podcast. Aloha, JC. Aloha. Pleasure <laughs> to be here with you, Val. Thank you so much. This is, I feel so honored and I'm like, I'm a little nervous, honestly. I'm like, okay, I can do this. <laughs> I, I've never interviewed um, someone like you before. So this is new to me and I really appreciate you taking time to be with me and the love tribe here and talk about some big dreams, talk about some mistakes, talk about some lessons, talk about, of course, some music and poetry and all the good things. So I totally appreciate you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. It's funny, like, you know, you throw out all those titles and the reality is I'm just a performer with a heart, you know? You are a performer with a heart. That's for sure. Those other people gave me those titles because they wanted to hang out with me. <laughs> well, it's like you're you're this artist person and person, this artist persona who you create in many different ways. It seems like you're, you know, obviously you're a father, you're a businessman, you are somebody who has experience in front of the camera and behind the camera and you know, making all the deals. I and mean, that's a lot of hats to wear as one yeah. person in this life. So you give you a lot of uh a lot of credit. So I want to I want to talk with you first about our song of the week. I, I, this is something I usually do at the end of the podcast, mm-hmm. and I thought, you know what? When I asked you about this, you got so fired up, and I'm like, I want to talk about the song first, and because I want to understand your energy around this beautiful song. And so, can you share with the listeners what the song of the week is and why it's so cool for you and how it's affected your life? So I'm in show business. I've been in show business for 29 years. Whoa. And I have been, I've been everything you can be in show business. I've been on the outside wanting in. I've been a person who had a dream and a desire with no roadmap. I've been, you know, told I was no good, you know, abused by teachers growing up, you know, grew up in a tough neighborhood. And, you know, it was always known as a kid growing up, you were going to do really well in school and go to college, or you were going to get a job working in a company where you could start working toward retirement at age 21. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a young kid, I was never directed that I was ever going to go to college or that I was ever going to have any kind of degree where I would be a professional outside of a tradesman. And that was a, that was something that, that kind of shocked me really, because I remember being a young kid when I was six years old, I had said to my mother that I wanted to be an actor. And I remember I was riding in her car 
and when I was when I was young, um, you know, my mother and I had a very good relationship, and we would there were times in our life we'd find ourselves at a place called Friendlies having an ice cream. I remember Friendlies, <laughs> yeah. and I felt like you know for some reason, and and this is a long time ago. We're talking this is forty four years ago, and I just remember like maybe. Maybe 43, maybe I was seven. But I just remember her asking what I wanted to be when I grew up and I told her. And I remember being excited about that. And I remember like taking that as a yes. You know, taking as a yes. And at such a young age, when someone tells you yes on something that for some reason, like I'm a little kid, I don't know what I should be doing with my life. I'm just a little kid. And but don't you find yourself asking little kids what they're going to be when they grow up? Always. I still ask myself that question <laughs> at my inner child. <laughs> so maybe through the years, like, so at that age, I was still innocent. You know, I was still in a family. There was, I, you know, I could never understand what money was or anything. I was just, for some reason, of all the things I saw, whether it was a policeman or it was a fireman, you know, whether it was evil Knievel, I wanted to be an actor. And I don't know what that meant. But at that time, that's what I wanted to be. Who was, who was an actor or somebody that you saw that you're like, yeah, I want to do that. Do you remember? Wow. That's a really good question. I think it's, um, I'd have been like the $6 million man or something like that. It might've been as simple as that. You know? Steve Austin. Dude, I wanted to be the bionic woman. I don't want it to be Mr. Mr. $6 million woman. Right. Uh, <laughs> like awesome, but then I liked her even more. She was great, right? I loved those shows. And of course, the sound effects were so cool. They're still so timeless. Like yeah. you hear it and it's instantly like a oh, $6 million man. It's so good. And so, so you had somebody in your life who said yes to your dream at a young age. Like that's amazing. Yeah. You know, like not to have a dream crusher in your life. My friend Heidi. Uh, life she, became, but life became the dream crusher. Life became, and at what point did that happen for you? I mean, because clearly you made it and you got through a lot of hurdles and you, you, you became this, this beautiful actor and a producer and a writer. So you obviously, you know, have had such a journey. So what happened here for you? I think that, and like I said, to be growing up, to be a tradesman, you know, as a young boy, I was always, I always had jobs. So my mother worked at the army base in Boston, actually South Boston. And I used to go in there with her during the week and I would work just washing dishes and cleaning silverware and get paid like, you know, 10, $20 a day to do that with the other dishwashers. And then those jobs led to other jobs. And so I come, you know, there was seven kids in my family, you know, my mother and father got married young. My mother was 19. My father was 24. Two years later, they had my oldest brother and they had my brother, Tommy. So that was number three. So it goes Johnny, Tommy, Jimmy, Timmy, Kathy, Colleen, Danny. So that's my family, you know, uh, so it was seven kids and two parents. So there were nine of us. Wow. And on my little brother's birthday, he was 10 years old. Uh, we had a birthday party for him and my father went out that night and he just never came back. So it's kind of a funny thing because I always look back at my little brother, Timmy's birthday and it was a great day. And so remember the gifts he got, he got a, 
he got uh, the monsters. They used to have a car and all the monsters sat in it and it, it took off and he had to go to baseball glove and he got a couple of things. We had a nice party for him. And my father went out that night and he got, he was crossing the street and was killed by a drunk driver. So at age 12 years old, when that happened, age 13 for me, really 12, 13 and my brother's birthday, it kind of sets a tone for your life because you're not supposed to know what that feels like at that age, but that's not true either. See, it's been happening forever. You just yeah. always hope for the best. Yeah. You hope you're one of the lucky ones. Yeah. And, and I am now. See, you are now. And, but that's a massive loss at such a young age. And then to deal with your, your whole family and your mother, I mean, it sounds like you probably had to grow up pretty quickly because you had younger siblings. Yeah, well, luckily enough, I mean, like I said, I'd already washed a couple of dishes in my life. So it was, you know, time spent could be spent earning money or could be spent spending money or could be spent working or could be spent in many different ways. And at that age, so my oldest brother was 17. My brother, Tommy, was 15. So I was 13. My sister, Kathy, was 12. Timmy was 10. Colleen was seven and Danny was just born. He was uh, one year old. So that was like, you got to look at it. You know, it was a, it was a massive funeral and everyone was there. And then it was radio silence. It was, it's, 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 if I can only explain when somebody dies, how it makes all the people you love so uncomfortable that they don't know how to approach you. Right. As an adult, have you had that experience with other people who've had a death in their family? Like, have you had to deal with that? And yeah. in a way that was like, that gave you, that you were the uncomfortable one and being like, oh God, what do I do? The person's child died or they're... only uncomfortable because I, I, like to, I like to make sure that if I call somebody, that I'm going to have like an hour. Yeah. Well, I don't want to say I got to go. So, um, no, you know, Val, we have a shared experience, but there's something I've always known. And maybe I knew it the day after my father died. Maybe I didn't like it when I knew it. Maybe I didn't like what I knew, which was nobody ever dies. So, That's what, so this leads to a good question, I think. What do you think happens after you die? What do you think happened to your dad? What do you think happens to all these? Folks, all of us. Part is, I've learned not to ask. You've learned not to ask. Yep. Do you think about it though? But then I'm wasting my thoughts on what I can do to be better. Got it. I, I do. You believe in angels or guides? Of course. You do. And so, do you believe that angels and guides are other? Whatever we can imagine, believe in. You do. I love that. Okay. So anything is possible. You're telling me that Woody and Toy Story is not alive. You're telling me that Buzz Lightyear. Right? So they, oh, dude, they're so alive in my heart. In that movie, but yeah. they might be alive in another universe forever. Exactly. I agree with that. I, I'm all about the spirit of a creation. Like it has its own soul to me. It's got its own energy. And so I think it's kind of an interesting it, it, that this could go down a lot of different directions with that, with the creation. Religion's really important for religious people 
spirituality is really important for spiritual people. Yeah. And, you know, whoever you are, you better figure it out and find your path and pick, you know, do the best you can to pick good mentors. Do yeah. the best you can because the best you can will eventually lead you to find out that the mentor you've chosen, you need to move on from that mentor. Sometimes, yeah. Well, sometimes we do graduate from our, our spiritual teachers and our yeah. spiritual mentors. And well, maybe you learned what you needed to learn. Maybe it was only one thing instead of a hundred. Yeah. I know for one of the teachers that I was following for a little bit, his teacher told him at a certain level, like, never talk to me again, like move on. He's, and I was like, whoa, that's got to be hard. But it really is this, like you can get stuck in this one little box of teachings and because it's safe and comfortable and familiar and it's like well no you got to grow now you got to keep expanding your your soul and your understanding of the universe and spirit so what songs are all about everything yes. everything, all these, everything artists are just trying to express that how they feel and don't worry this too shall pass well so let's circle back to the song for you and so you said it's called never enough yes and this That's was from yeah, go ahead. The Greatest Showman with uh, with with Hugh Jack. And the reason why I can say it is because so I, you know, I, I like Hugh Jack when he's a good actor. Mm -hmm. um, I've liked him in all the movies I've seen him in. So this song, it I wasn't expecting this song. OK, I wanted to watch this with my kids because I hadn't seen anything with them. I was out of town on business. I was doing a lot of work. And I needed to sit down with my kids and, and try to have like watch something with them. But my daughter didn't want to watch it, but I got my son to watch it with me. But then what happened was I was sitting there with him and this song came on. And I, I just didn't see it coming because I, 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 I didn't know who the actress was. You know, normally when something happens in a movie, the person doing it you know you know what i mean mm -hmm. like oh there's going to be a that this a great part's coming very rarely in a big movie star movie do you see a scene in a movie with someone you don't know and then they lay out this unbelievable thing that's usually a star that does that so this was a star making thing but the lyrics see i i i listened to it but my son who's only seven years old he listened to it too so that's it so it says matt this is now imagine a woman steps out onto stage. She's been brought into New York by P.T. Barnum. And he's the biggest laughing stock in New York City because he shows freaks and animals and they're trying to get him out of there. He's been panned by every single respectable uh, critic. And he, he meets this woman when he's meeting the queen in London because he's made so much money she has to see him and all his weird people. And he meets this woman and he looks at her and she's striking but the person who's with him, Zac Efron, the character, knows that she's an opera singer. And, and he and his P.T. Bonham thinks, well, that'll be great. She's lovely. Let me bring her to New York. We'll just have her sing. Why not? Because she's great. Why not? So obviously he goes and he tells her this at Buckingham Palace. The queen's there. But she's the, the woman is sophisticated, this 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 woman, you know, she and and he says, to her, I want you to come to New York City and I'll bring you there and you're going to sing the song. And she's like, yeah, but why? I mean, it's I don't want the money. I donate all my money to charity. And he says, well, because I want to show people something real. Hmm. And you tell that to an artist, and you tell that to an artist and you mean that. 
it doesn't, everything falls away because that's all every artist is trying to get to. I mean, John Lennon saying, imagine, mm-hmm. okay? yeah, you don't maybe. get there. You don't wake up and write that song. You live that song. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I heard this, the music got me, but the lyrics owned me. Mm. Goes, I'm trying to hold my breath. Let it stay this way. Can't let this moment end. You set off on a dream in me, getting louder now. Can you hear it echoing? Take my hand. Will you share this with me? Because, darling, without you, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Never be enough for me. And, you know, I identified with that because I've in my life felt that things were never enough. And then you find out that you, know, you better find a spiritual life somehow. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll never understand that everything was enough. I love that. Everything is enough. So, holy cow. I, I remember seeing that movie, I don't know, I'd say six months ago or so. And I loved it. And I, I remember her and I remember this like switch of like, whoa, that is happening. And he pursued that and let that fly out instead of just being like, okay, we're going to have the freaks and everybody. So he was like, let's do this part. And they fell in love, right? Oh, no, no, because he loved his wife. See, this is why this but he, he loved his wife, but I think there was something talent. there. Come on. He was in love with her talent. Got it. See, he was a true, that's a true producer. He's not Harvey Weinstein. He don't He's want you to show him. He wants to put you on stage so you can sing that song and yeah. make the world a better place. Right on. It's so, so that, made, that song made me a better person. That made my day. It make it connected something for me and my son. Hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't see it coming. It's not a movie that I, I would have, I would have seen it in the movies afterward. And so for you, when you're writing and coming up with your ideas for shows or movies, like how do you integrate, do you think about the music that you want as you're writing it, or is it something that shows up later? I'm just curious what the process is for you with the music integration. Everything's a blank page. It's just, it, starts, it just starts with a white wall, you know, and where, where did I just come from? What did I just see? Like, what's going on? You know, um, I just, I don't think any, I, I think everything is destiny and everything is fate and everybody's, the menu's been laid out. You have inside of you, a message that mm-hmm. you have to share and you have to see through. Otherwise you never get to be you. And so what's your message, JC? My message is to believe in myself so much that I can believe in everybody else. Mm. So if I say that, if I'm just busy, just taking care of my business and knowing that I'm doing the best that I can, then I can enjoy other people's talent. And I can, I can share it with others. I don't have to have jealousy issues or things that go with that. I can enjoy each performance, each talent. Like I can look at a rose or a flower and see it for what it is. 
Right. And you don't shrink because the rose is the most beautiful rose you've ever seen. Because I just take a deeper breath. <laughs> yeah. You're like, epic. This is great. Have you always had this or have you gone through a phase at all of, you know, as you're developing as an artist and as a, as a human, like where you're like, oh shit, what is this? Am I really good enough? Are you, are you cut out for this? Or have you always, I mean, you seem like such a badass. Have you ever had self-doubt? Have you ever had this not believing in yourself? I mean, look, I'm, I'm 50 years old. I've been sure this is a long time. You know, I'm sure if you go back, I'm sure that means that there's people that have known me for 25 years. Okay. And maybe they knew me really well 25 years ago for a year. And they're sure they know who I am. They're sure. And they're right. They do. But they just don't know who I am now. You know? So I accept that as well. Like, I realize I don't know anybody. You know, I, I, only, know, I only know who I knew when I knew them. I bank on that. Because I know of all the things I've ever done in my life, I, I really have always tried my best. And... I've, I've never intentionally went out to try to hurt anybody. And now sometimes because that's true and I've been through the gamut and I, you know, I have hurt people even in trying not to hurt them. Okay. But I can look at that now and know that, that that was an experience for the two of us. You know? Totally. And, and so as far as where you are now versus where you were, so you've had some transformations in your life. And so what, what would somebody, and I don't want, I don't actually, I don't want to know what somebody else would think. What do you think about your journey from point A to point today? You know, what is the biggest, what's the biggest mistake that you have made and overcome in your life? The biggest mistake I ever made was compromising my dream for money. Yeah. Wow. That's a big one. I had an opportunity to be an actor when I was younger and that's really all I wanted to be. And Mm. I had written a movie. I wrote a movie called Southie and, you know, it became the cult classic film. It cost $1.2 million to make. A gentleman I worked with for years found out that he had made like $34 million. And I was like, oh, my God. So, you know, that's a lot of people that saw that movie. It ran on HBO for many, many years. And when I wrote that movie, I wrote that movie out out of enormous pain, you know, because, see, at that time, even then, see, I wanted to be an actor, right? But let me cut back because, see... What I talked about was life crushes your dreams. It does. And from that comes passion. So when you're 13 years old and your father dies and a couple weeks go by and you're sitting there and your mother's in the living room with you and she's telling you that, look, guys, your father's gone. There's nothing we can do about that. But we have to move on. And now we all go back to school. Our lives are all different. You know, um, there's no, there's no dreams. There's what's death. You know, it's hollow as far as you can see. It's, it's yelling down into the longest corridor and not getting a voice back, you know, but maybe the echo is the voice. 
maybe, maybe it's something else. Maybe it never comes back. Maybe it goes so far that it's with that person. Right. And, but when you're that young, so you don't know anything. So it doesn't matter what philosophers have ever said before. It doesn't matter what anyone says that I'm going through because I'm young at that age. So they can tell me I can agree or disagree. It doesn't mean that it's the truth. It doesn't mean that even I'm saying I disagree that that's true. And even if I agree with what they tell me I should be failing, it doesn't matter that's true. What we can agree on is I survived it. Now I know how I felt. And I can, I, I can put words to that. So see, sometimes you're not over something, but you have to block it out because you got to keep going. Yeah. Okay. So I've only been to alcohol and drug rehabilitation once in my life. And it's because deep down inside, I never felt like I was a chronic alcoholic. I'm not a drug addict. Um, but I found myself every time I was in trouble, I was drinking, whether it be trouble with maybe the authority or authority that be, whether it be my mother or our parents or the local law, or maybe, maybe I got in an argument at a bar or a fight in a bar, or, you know, maybe, maybe my restless, irritable discontentness while drinking alcohol caused some injury. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you wake up the next day and, you know, like everybody else, they say, ah, forget about it, just move on. And you forget about it, you just move on. And, you know, when I was a little kid, I was not a, um, I was not a, like a tough kid in my neighborhood. I wasn't any of those. I was just a, a curious kid who had a lot of, a lot of things that I wanted to do. I mean, when I was little, before my father died, I remember we were in my yard and we had a big yard and I said, Hey, can I, can I have a carnival in this yard? And he was like, yeah. Right. So like, yeah, I dad, <laughs> know what that meant, but I kind of made up all my fake rides and like I used a ladder and I put like a, a plastic boat that went in the pool and it was like a roller coaster that would go down and <laughs> I would do all these crazy things. I, I put this swing on one tree to another and I was charging five cents to come and people were paying me. Right. <laughs> so there's something about creating an event and a camaraderie that I like. Yeah. So obviously watching television, I think that when I looked in TV into a TV screen, I didn't see those people. Like, even if the movie was worse than my life, I was still feeling worse than they were. So I thought inside that TV might be an answer for me. Maybe I can escape what's going on inside of me. And I cannot have any of those things. I can just feel good like those two people do on TV, you know? So I used to lay up at night and watch, it used to be called At The Movies, and it was on Channel 38. And my father and mother would stay up late at night, and I would sneak into the living room, and I'd crawl underneath this coffee table, and I would watch the movies. And sometimes my father would catch me, and my mother would say, Jack, Jack, it's okay. Let him stay, because he's not like the other kids. That's what she would say to him. And sometimes he'd say, yeah, and sometimes he'd say, no. And now that I'm a father, I get it. I want my alone time with my wife when I want it. <laughs> oh my God, I'm that, right? So I get it. So the thing is, is that, so look, I may have been mad at my father then, right? Am I mad at him now? No. Right. So you get it. Right. You get so, it later. <laughs> right. So the thing is, is um, that, so my father died. So then when I was, um, I grew up in a town where there was a lot of bullies. Okay. Um, but not a typical bully. 
a, a bully in a TV show and a movie, you have to set that bully up and then that's the bully. But see, in real life, passive aggressiveness creates its own bully. Yeah. And when you deal in a town that's that used to be, imagine if there's a mobster and there's people that want to be mobsters, right? There's people that want to be wise guys. And I never wanted to be any of those guys, but I like them all. Just like I like all the cops. I like all the firemen. I like everybody, right? So, but when your father dies, there's a protective layer that's gone. So, you know, I may have been in too many fights. I may have beat, been beaten up too many times. I may, may, may have beat too many people up, may have. So, you know, what normal people may be afraid of, I'm not afraid of, you know. Um, so by the time I was 18 years old, I had a fantastic job. I was working for General Electric Company. I was making a lot of money, but then GE bought RCA and my salary doubled. So now I'm like 19 years old, making $80,000 a year in 1987. Wow. You're like, yes. But then I'm become like the top technician at the company because I'm, I know how to fix things because I know how to do it. And then I'm winning awards because now what's happening is these guys are complaining that I'm, I'm doing the union guys are mad because I was doing too many jobs in an hour. I was doing like two jobs an hour, three jobs. And I'm like, dude, no, it's one job an hour because, you know, we got to keep, you got to pace yourself. And they, by the way, they were right because I, I would not have been able to keep that up. I was just, I was young and I was hungry and I had bought this little TV and I used to do service calls, HVAC, air conditioning, refrigeration, all this stuff. And I would rush my jobs because I wanted to eat my lunch and watch a TV show I wanted to watch on my little TV. Right. So I had my reasons for getting through my calls. They think I'm fucking just running around fixing everything. I just want to watch my television show at my lunchtime. And, you know, but then this guy was complaining about me and I found out that he used to like to sell these policies. These, and he used to be number one and one quarter I wiped them out. I just went in every, every house I'd go into, I'd sell insurance policies. So now, now if he told on me, I'd say, well, he, he, he can't do what I can do. So I can fix all the stuff and I just outsold him an insurance policy. So now I just add an extra 20 grand a year to my, cause I'm selling $200,000 in, in insurance policies. I'm getting 10% of that a year. Right. And then you obviously switched somehow from that to yeah, creativeness so. and producing and acting. So how did that jump go? Like, well, when you walk into someone's house and you have a toolbox and you're representing a company, you're acting right happy and you have a great <laughs> life and you're working for them and you care about them and their products right and then you the politics of that is your i was the first hire in 20 years because these guys got hired after the war and they all were older than me but i could fix microwave ovens and they couldn't but they knew how to walk into a kitchen and close their eyes and they could figure out what was wrong with the refrigerator by the way it sounded and they taught me that but you got there somehow, but you went from there to here. How did you get back to your dream of getting in the box, getting, creating something that people could go jump into? This, now you're this, me. You now just, I'm you. <laughs> you just told me what I was going through at 20 years old. How do I tell my mother and family and everybody, I make more money than everybody. Why, how do I tell them that? that I'm going to leave this job that I have 
to chase this dream of a conversation I had with my mother in a car on the way to Friendly's at age seven or eight years old. So how did you? I told her. You just said, I'm doing this. And then did you go, did you go west to California? Did you do everything from the East so Coast? I, well, I like how you said that. So I just told her, right? What do you yeah. think? I just told her. She probably, she, she shit herself. And then she said, I love you, honey. I got you. So she probably had all of the ingredients of, oh my God, and yes, and no, and what are you thinking? I don't know. That's what I would think as a mother. And that's what my parents did when I had a couple of dreams that I had to drop on their lap. <laughs> she didn't talk I, to me forever. She didn't talk to me for like a year. She, a like, year? Oh my gosh. Then stuff because we'd come back and forth. Like when I say talk to me, I mean, you'd walk and say, oh, hi, but there was no, she, she wanted me home. Yeah. Coming back. And so I went there in my first year, but I drank myself out of all the money I'd ever made. And because I was so uncomfortable, I, I knew I wanted to do something, but I didn't know how. Mm. So I went to New York City and I studied acting at Herbert Berghoff Studios. And, you know, I met all sorts of people that want to be actors. And, but then there were people that were actors. See, we wanted to be the people that were. And then there were teachers that were teaching us, like William Hickey was a teacher of mine. And, you know, he was in Pritzy's on. He was Pritzy. Hey, I know it. He was in My Blue Heaven. You know, he was in The Producers in like the 60s. I mean, this guy was a, a well-known actor at the time, a character actor. And I was taking a class with him. And, you know, I'd taken a class with Uta Hagen. She wrote the book Respect to Acting. And Herbert Berghoff was her husband. And, you know, so it was all this big, big dream. But you have to remember, this is long before the internet. This is long before cell phones. This is dial phones on you know, push buttons at this point in time. But so in order for me, I had to, so I tell my mother that she's not happy with it. But my brother, Tommy just gets a job in New York at Heidelberg, which is in Queens. So we go to New York, we're looking for an apartment in the city. And there's a place, there's a train station that's right at like a mile away from his work. And the train station that's in Queens takes you right into the city. And we're saving like a thousand bucks a month on rent. So I was like, yeah, this is perfect. You know, cause I'm at the time, New York city was daunting because the only way you saw it was in the Frank Sinatra commercial. Like I love New York or in a movie, you know, but in the movies it's Serpico. It's, you know, it's, it's Goodfellas. Goodfellas has just come out. So see, the internet's not there yet. The, there's still three, there's still, you know, NBC, CBS, ABC, and Fox. Those are your four stations. And you get your two UHF stations. So remember, we don't have the information. We don't have what we have today. So going into New York was a very different place. And I didn't, I knew what I wanted, but there was no path. I couldn't see it. And I would go and I would take the classes and I would try and I would, and I was, I try to tell people like when I, when you watch wrestling on Saturday morning, that's the kind of actor I was. I was like, you listen to Hulk Hogan. Like I, I couldn't connect with my feelings. I think that's probably why I wanted to be one. I wanted to learn to connect. Right. So I actually was there and, um, I run out of money and it was terrible. I had to come back to Boston. It was humiliating. And I, a friend of mine drove me back and he said, you know, you think maybe you're having a problem with alcohol. And I was like, no. He was like, well, well, no, man. I mean, it came, came and went pretty quick, you know? So I thought about that. And right then I sobered up. Like I sobered up. I took in what he had to say. And I imagine if I had had a father and 
if father was paying attention, I think he might have tried to talk to me, maybe. But I didn't. I had me. You know, I had my friends. I had, I had experienced people in my neighborhood. And the people who believed in me, like they believed in me as a human. So they were like, okay, look, you can do it. And there weren't many of them, but those are the ones I listened to. Six months, I saved my money. I went back to New York. I mean, I made a commitment. I wasn't going to drink alcohol, you know, until I got everything that I wanted. And, you know, I went back, I started a new acting school. I started studying with George Loros, who was in Serpico, and Janet Ward, who'd been nominated for an Academy Award at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. And there were people who had taken it very seriously, and they had sense memory and the method, and there were books and movies, and, you know, George was a serious guy, and, and, and if you didn't pay attention to him in his class, get the fuck out, right to your face. And he didn't care. You know, uh, it was different. So, you know, I responded to that. And, you know, I was not very, I was terrible. I was a terrible actor. Uh, my first three auditions, I got all three jobs. I don't even know how. I don't. It wasn't, it's just, but doing that is what kept me going. See, this is where fate is, right? Destiny is when you're going after it. Fate's what's going to come and get you anyway. I like that. So you can either prepare for it or, it's, or not. You can prepare for the thing the message that was planted in you when you were born. Yeah. Cause I'm going to tell you something right now. It was over for me before it happened. It was over. But what was over was I tried everything I could to be successful. And, and I've talked to you about this. See, so I wasn't a chronic alcoholic. I wasn't a drug addict, but I like to smoke pot. I like to sometimes do drugs if I wanted to, because I can say no to drugs. I can take drugs and stop doing them, but I can't take a sip of alcohol and stop drinking alcohol. Mm. And so I knew that. Now, what happened was, was that I used to like to go home in the summers from New York because New York City smells like piss in the summertime. Yep. And I lived down the Lower East Side. <laughs> and, you know, I had gone home this one summer to, to make a lot of money. And I had already started. I was now becoming a good actor. In other words, I could take a scene and I could read it. And I could know how, I could know how to perform that scene. Now I started doing plays. So now I could take a scene. I could learn it and, and uh, work on another scene, another scene. And then I could come through a full performance and actually deliver a performance that people would say, wow, that was really good. Okay. So now George Loros is talking about, you got to create your own work. If you want to make it in this time, you got to create your own work. You got to create your own work. And I don't really know what any of this means, but I had gone home one summer and a friend of mine wanted to open an illegal gambling club. And I was like, yeah, let's make money. So we did it. And, you know, of course you do that and all the gangsters show up and, you know, gangsters, they need to flex their muscles, you know, in the movies, they win. They don't win in real life because when they mess with a good guy, the good guys show up and you never hear about them in the news because they don't make it to the news. So, you know, that's why the city of Austin's a great place because it's, the oldest city really in this time here, like it's one of them. And the thing is that although there are all the rules and laws are set there and they're all set to be, 
but there's a, there's a moment in time where a man knows that he has to step up be a man, no matter what the fucking law is. And, um, most times it's not against the law doing that because you, you don't have time to wait for the law. So you got to go handle it. And, uh, knowing that and learning that at a young age. So here I am and I come home and I have the situation and it's like, you know, I get through it. Okay. But I go back to New York and I'm studying and I'm a doorman at a bar and checking IDs and I'm realizing, wait a minute, that story is like a movie. So I go in and get some napkins and I start writing them down. I start writing them down and all of a sudden everything's coming to be because see everything I ever was growing up is now turning into this movie. If that's who the lead character is. And now did I know how to write a movie? No, but there was a book on how to write a movie and I didn't know how to type, but I knew someone who did, but I had a story and I could get him and we could do it together and he didn't want to do it, but I kept telling it to him that he wanted to do it. And then we write it, we make it and, you know, get the, 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 the screenplay together. And then, you know, all of a sudden people want to do it. And then, you know, Harvey Weinstein wants to do it, but he doesn't want me to be in it. So I don't want him to be in it. Right. So, um, then I get another offer and then I meet this director and he wants to do it. Then I meet this rich guy and he likes it. So I get his money, this director, and then I'm sorry. Now I was supposed to star in the movie, but this be the star of the movie, but the director felt like you wanted to have somebody else in there and, you know, that's the business of this business. But what I learned was, see, that was my mistake. It was right there. When mm-hmm. I told you I gave up on my own dream, I did it right there, right? So I did play the secondary character in that movie, and I did such a good job in it that I was like the ultimate bad guy of all bad guys. And I remember this guy, I was up for this other movie, and I remember he said, you should have just put a patch on that movie. I said, why? He goes, because then we would have figured out why he was such a fucking asshole. <laughs> Because every time I meet somebody, I realize, no, even though you're in Hollywood, they can't differentiate the person from the character they just saw. They have to think that he's something like that. And they don't know that us, that us good guys, it's harder for us. We're tougher than any bad guy because we have to fight doing the wrong thing. They just do it, you know? Well, what an interesting perspective. I never yeah. really thought about it like that. I have to fight them all the time. I have to fight the bad guy. Because the bad guy doesn't have a problem trying to take my eye out or trying to hit me with something, right? The bad guy don't have a problem with that. Yeah. But the good guy has to figure out how to avoid that hit and hit this guy and not hurt him. <laughs> See what I mean? It's like a, it's a Zen thing. It's weird, right? Wow. So then you get to a place like New York where New York's supposed to be this tough case and there's a million New Yorkers who probably watch this, but it's not. It's a business place. It's a smart place. It's a good place. That's where you learn in New York, you die in New York. In Boston, if you're falling down, someone will pick you up. You'll have some place to, ple- to sleep to put you on a couch. You got to get fired 10 times before they'll stop finding you a job. You know, that's a family-oriented place that never gives up on you. New York City don't give you a chance until you believe in yourself. Mm. So, wow, good circle. I like I circled it all the way back here, JC. This is good. And so, so believing in yourself. So, what happened though? You, you, you got. You decided to be sober for a while. You got everything I you wanted. I have a choice. Well, you knew, like, in order to do the things you wanted to do, you needed to make a different decision for yourself, and you did, and rocked it. And then what happened, though? Something happened. Of course. Well, I have a younger brother who was one years old when I was born. And at the, you know, top of everything, when I had the most money, I had everything going for me. You know, he broke his neck. 
And and then this is where the journey forward, the the nonprofit that you started with him came from. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it really came from my mother because it's not it's not like it was my idea. I just didn't want to see my mother in this enormous amount of pain that she was in over her baby who's in a wheelchair who, you know, you want to get the kid out of the crib and off into life. And you don't want to get him up to be age 19 where he's supposed to go live in his life. And now he's a baby again, but he's a big baby. You can't pick him up. You can't change his diaper. And guess what? He is shitting his pants. All that stuff's going on. But this kid who was 220 pounds, he breaks his neck for six weeks. He's we're told he's going to die every day and then he's going to survive. So you survive from a broken neck where you're told you're going to die every day. Where's your head at? Yeah. So I had no, I was, I shed no right even going back to show business at that point. Uh, My wife at the time, she was just my girlfriend. She was starring in a perfect storm, you know, and I'll never forget it. We were going to the premiere. We had tickets, we had limousines and we're I was, we were just about to go home and I get the phone call that my brother broke his neck. And it was like, I, I don't know. Like I, I didn't even know what to do. I, it took me, I think I just got over it. I, that was, that was June 24th, 2000. It's, it's 2018. I just got over it. Like I just got over the emotional drag of that. Yeah. So what happened was I started smoking pot and then when the pot didn't work, I started drinking wine. And when the wine didn't work, I started drinking vodka. When the vodka didn't work, I started drinking whiskey and the whiskey didn't work. I ended up in jail. Yeah. Because see you, if you're drinking the most powerful stuff you can and it's not working and you want that other drink, but everybody around you knows you can't take it and they try to stop you, what do you do? The defense, you get angry, you drink more. <laughs> Who wants to be around you at that yeah. point? Yeah. So, you know, when you break it, when I broke, my brother broke his neck, I felt like I had a million friends and they all showed up for me and I just couldn't, it's like, I, I don't, you know, when they all show up for you, they don't realize your brother just broke your neck. They think they're going to show up and now they're going to give you a hug and you're going to be fine. Or they're going to give you something. You're going to be fine. You're not fine. It doesn't go away after the hug. It doesn't go away after the cup of coffee. It doesn't go away after the movie. It doesn't go away. It's, it's, you're trying to forget about it for 10 minutes so you can figure out how to come back around and how do I fix this problem? I'm a fixer. I've been fixing things since I was a little kid. The doctor's saying he's never going to get out of a wheelchair. He's never going to feed himself again. This is it. He's trying to convince my family of that. I'm a believer. I believe in hope. I don't believe in that. But I'm being shut down by everybody. But now, where do you go? That's when you dive into your work, right? Yeah. No one wants me at work. They feel bad when they look at me because... They don't, they don't want to think about someone who knows someone has a broken neck because they want to be happy. So we don't want that guy around our creative space. So, you know, you reach all your dreams and something happens on the outside and now you're all alone and you're in jail. You can't get out. Your wife won't bail you out because you're an alcoholic and now you know it. And, um, you know, 35 at the time and, uh, 
might as well kiss that acting career goodbye because I had been offered something before and I didn't take it. And you always hear about actors turning things down, turning that down. No one turns anything down. What happens is they're doing something else and they're unavailable. And they later say they turned it down. You know, they didn't turn it down. The fool turns it down. The good actor brings himself to that project and meets with the director and says, this is what I can do to make this better. If he says no to that, then you move on and they make you a bigger offer because those are creative differences. That's not, no one turns anything down. So as an actor, I, I was confused because I didn't know if I was a writer or if I was an actor, but I couldn't write and I couldn't act either because I couldn't stop thinking about what was going on. And, um, you know, I even, there was this thing, I even got into this network marketing thing. I mean, uh, uh, whatever the fuck, it was one of those things because I thought, well, I can do this and I can teach it to my brother. And, you know, if you ever done anything like that where you go and there's like a, a you know, um, what's it called? It's like multi MLMs, yeah, right? the MLMs. You try doing that and then go to a party two weeks later and see how much you're welcome. Like, no one wants that. Yeah. People want to figure out how to make money in their own. They don't want you to tell them unless, unless you're going to tell them and leave. No one, everyone wants to find their way, do what they want. So look, I get into something like that. It tore now the great reputation I did have was gone now because now I just went and tried to do this Mickey Mouse thing. Right. Yeah. So, but now I've got all this talent. See, it's still there. Right. And, and now you know, there was this guy, George Lowe said to me after I made the movie Southie, he, he said to me, I was taking class at 39th and 8th. And it was a place called Coffee Cake right there. And he goes, let you and I go for a walk. And I said, okay. And I was thought he was going to like, you know, you're great and all this stuff. And he took me on this walk and he said, uh, James. I said, yeah. He goes, oh, what I'm about to say to you is, you know, I feel that I need to say this. And I said, yeah. So I'm waiting, right? Now this guy started teaching me how to act. Like I was taking his classes at 22 years old, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. I'm 20, I'm almost 28 years old now. It's a long time. And he takes me to a while and he says, I just want to let you know that don't get discouraged. I said, no, 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 absolutely not. He's like, because it's not going to happen for you until you're older. <laughs> what the fuck is that? Right? <laughs> and I'm like, like, all right, so don't you know I just started a movie? I just sold it to Lionsgate. I just sold the movie for half a million dollars. All right, you know? And, and I will tell you, so then, now there's an obstacle, right? So now here I am. I'm 20, I mean, I'm, I'm 30 something years old. I've already gone through my career. I've already been in jail. I've already trying to get sober. I have a brother was a broken neck. I'm like, Sometimes my brother would call me from his wheelchair and be like, what are you doing? I'd be like, I'm on the floor. Because I'd be on the floor from the night before. I couldn't get up. I was drunk and I couldn't get up. And I just, fuck it, I couldn't get up. My wife had gone with a kid with our daughter to her mother's because she couldn't see me that way. I was like, I didn't want to get married because I felt that way. Right? I felt that way. I felt incomplete. I felt something wrong. Right? So now writing movies because that's all I know how to do. I'm getting paid to do it, but I was getting paid lots of money. Now I'm not getting paid lots of money. I'm getting paid little bits of money. I'm going from living good to not living good. And 
I decided like I had already gone right when I was in jail, I got on my hands and knees. I'm like, I'm never going to drink again. I prayed to God. I got out and boom, by the grace of God, I got sober again. A year went by and this guy kept coming to my house and coming to my house and coming to my house. And he wanted me to meet this guy. I didn't want to meet this guy. But I met with him because I didn't want him to come to my house anymore. And he, the guy wanted me to write a movie for him. I wrote a movie for him. And when I was writing the movie for him, he's like, wow, this is great. You know, and then we were talking about producing and then he was asking me questions and I was answering them. And he's like, hey, I'm starting a new independent film division. Do you want to come run that division? And I said, well, no, you know, I don't want to do that. And he's like, why? I'm like, cause I don't know how to do that. He's like, oh, well, you'll learn all that. I'm like, oh, well, not really. He's like, look, I can't pay for what you have and you believe in yourself and you believe what you say. And you're an honest person. He said, whether you know it or not, I had a private detective check you out. So, I mean, you're, you, know, you, you, you are who you say you are. So then he brought me in to meet this guy that I was going to work with. And then like a day later, he called me. So what are you going to do? And I said, no, I don't want to work with that guy. And he's like, why? I said, well, you said that guy's an attorney. He's like, well, he is. I said, no, he's not. He's like, yeah, he is. He's like, no, he's not. Well, he took me to dinner a week, dinner a week later. He said, I didn't like I was an attorney. I had to put the same private investigator on him. I just laughed. I said, because attorneys use big words because they spent a lot of money to learn those words. No attorney's interested in identifying with me. He wants me to identify with him. I said, that guy was, for somebody with all those credentials, why would he give a fuck what I think? He would be telling me what to do. Okay. And so let's talk about how you got here though, Jimmy, how, what are you up to now? Like, let's jump um, forward. Because see, we have to realize is in six months, I, that guy was gone. The, the attorney guy, the pseudo attorney. He was running. He was a, he was the president of production of the studios. They wanted to just be a development guy. But within six months, I was his job. I then at that point knew these two guys that were interns for us. And I was, I was like, these guys are brilliant. And the, the guy was like, Oh, these guys, they're just party guys. Well, I was like, no, no, give me 7,500 all. Let me go shoot a scissor rail. He's like, why? I go, well, they're going to Coachella. He goes, why would you care about shooting a scissor rail at Coachella? I go, because Coachella ain't for next month. He's like, why do I go? They're going up there with, they, they, these guys invited 33 girls with five guys. Something's going to happen. I want it on camera. You know, cut two months later, that becomes workaholics. Right. right? Okay. That becomes workaholics. And then what happens after that is I, I then go and sell another movie. So, see, like the movie The Fighter came about because nobody wanted the Mickey Ward story. Nobody wanted that movie. See, because the people who do what I do all graduate from schools and college, they run away from that stuff. The people that pay to go to movies, that's all they want to see. So see, I know that. And because I know that that's my value. So what happened was, is I realized that I'd given up on my dream and I realized, you know, because I had started this company and, and uh, with these people and it was a great company and um, I had gone to China. I got incredibly sick. And when I came home, I thought I was going to die. And after being in bed for three months, I finally went down to the liquor store. I picked up a gallon of vodka and I drank it. And I hadn't drank in years. When I woke up, I was in jail. Wow. So, see, I'd already given up being an actor. I'd given up all that stuff, even though I had acted in a movie. But when I, when I ended up 
this time when I got arrested, you know, because of the circumstances, I ended up having to go to rehab, which ended up being Sierra Tucson, where they had bioneurofeedback. And I got to understand why I always thought I wasn't an alcoholic. And the reason I always thought I wasn't an alcoholic is I had a picture of what that was in my mind. See, but bioneurofeedback showed me the picture in my mind. And the picture in my mind was, no, you're not a chronic alcoholic. You're the worst kind because I'm, I am the casual alcoholic. I'm the guy that has a couple of drinks and decides, hey, we're going to fucking party all night long. And I end up in jail because I'm drinking and driving or I'm not paying attention. I step into, off the curb and I get by a bus. I'm like, whoa, I get it now. So that was the beginning of my journey because what I learned was, see, because I wasn't willing to find out who I really, really was, I was never going to be who I really wanted to be. So now I know who I really am. And because I am who I really am and somebody asked me something, the answer is yes and no. It's not maybe. So when I say I'm going to reinvent myself and become an actor again, and even though I've been on many auditions where people told me like, you're going to get it, you're going to get it, you're going to get it. I went in there. I was great. I come out. I didn't get it. This job, everyone told me I was never going to get it. Everybody. But I knew I was going to get it. How'd you know? Because I knew I was, I knew like I knew when I was six years old. Mm. That's why. So, see, that's what I got to follow. But the greatest thing that ever happened to me is I now have a family and I have children. Mm-hmm. I have things that are worth something to me. So now I'll be able to make better choices because I'll have them in mind when I'm making them. But the only reason any of this is able to happen is because every rehab you normally go to, they give you the big book and that's what you study. But it's here at Tucson, they give you the four agreements. And that's not religious. That's a spiritual Bible. First agreement is be impeccable with your word. The second one is don't take anything personally. The third is don't assume anything. And the fourth is to always do your best. There's nothing offensive about any of that. Yeah, I love it. And I, I remember you were saying you do this with your family and talk about this, this wonderful book. I have this book on my kitchen counter. Um, I think it's great. And I just got a deck of cards for for the book too. What What's next for you, JC? I'm starring in a TV series. You know, I'm doing uh, City on a Hill. And uh, it's, we already shot the pilot, got picked up on a series regular. It's being produced by Matt Damon, Ben Affleck. Chuck McLean wrote it. Chuck McLean's like unbelievable. I grew up in Boston my whole life. No one's ever done what he's doing. Um, but what's really most important is that, you know, I have a charity that I work with. I work with a lot of charities. And what's important to me is that I keep people say, well, what is balance? What is balance? Balance is when when you wake up in the morning you know what's important you make your schedule you stick to it and you only change it if it's the right thing to do i love it and and so really quick sir i want to circle back really quick to the the, your dream and feeling because i really feel like you you know touching that when you were six or seven years old and then what you just said like you just feel it that you knew you were going to get this and you knew like, how do you, how do you help other people know to listen to that voice? Cause there's that voice that we all have. That's like, yeah, yeah. I want to do my dream thing, 
but then those three letters come up after it, you know, and how do you know when it's just like, fuck it, this is my dream and nobody is getting in the way of this sucker and I'm doing it. You know, how do you, how do you identify that within yourself and how do you help other people say like, yeah, this is, this is it. Go for it. Yeah. It's the four agreements. I mean, see, that's the whole thing. I mean, you can go into Alcoholics Anonymous, there's 12 steps. And by the time you're done with that, you'll make yourself right with everybody. The four agreements are going to make yourself right with you. Hmm. So when you're right with you and you ask yourself a question, who am I? Yourself answers that question. When you're clean and clear, it's clean and clear. Yeah. You know, it's clean and clear. I'm a creative person who loves to work with others. And, you know, I will help people that are in the direction of I'm going. I can't go out of my direction for people because it doesn't, it's not, doesn't exist. It's not a reality. This world is a straight line or a circle. And if you're not in a straight line, you're going in a circle. If you're not in a circle, you're going in a straight line. It's zero and it's one. And you got to decide what you are. Interesting. I've never heard anybody talk about it like that. A zero and a one, a straight line and a circle. And, and so what's going to be this, the, the legacy that you leave JC, like what are, you know, I talk, I, the, the Iroquois, the native Americans, they talk about the seventh generation, like living for seven generations ahead of you and what the choices that we make today impact seven generations forward. So what is something that, you know, that because you lived and because you said yes to your big dream, what is that going to look like in seven generations from now? I don't know. So we're going to save that for the next one because, <laughs> you know, I've, I'm young still. I've done so much, but my life just started. It did just start. And I love knowing you in this new phase of you and this new phase of me. It's pretty magical. See, but you talked about, what we're, we're doing something that you talked about a couple of years ago. So I'm not surprised by even this conversation. <laughs> so I just know that, like I just said, we'll talk again next time and I'll have that answer for you because that's what I'll be thinking about now. Well, and it's, it's the energy of what the, that that's like, I like to use the word thumbprint on the, the, the sculpture of life, the sculpture of, of humanity, you know, and it's like, what is our individual thumbprint that we leave? Like, is it I love? I like. I hear you say believing in yourself and not selling out your big dreams. Right, but like I don't a, know anything else. That's pretty good, though. I like right. that one. It's it's a t it's a strong one. Well, so okay, so JC, so for my, for our, our audience, for our love tribe and dream jockeys, so we do an experiment each week. And so the intention of the experiment is one simple thing that we can do to stay on track, to not sell out our big dreams, to take great care of ourselves, make sure that we're doing all the, the inside and outside things, whether it's with people, whether it's with money, whether it's with substances, with food, with time, with thoughts, you know, what's something that you use in your life that keeps you on track I have, I have one thing, but there's three parts. Okay, let's hear it. Because it's either, it's either that I have to not do something so I can achieve what I want. Okay. Or I have to do something 
so I can achieve what I want or is to let it all go by so I can achieve what I want. Got it. So there's three poems and my poems are mine. And what that means is somewhere along the way in my life, these three things came to me at a point where I realized that I couldn't go on without them. Hmm. So I memorized them. And do you want to share? Yeah, the first one's simple. It was the first one I learned. It's the serenity prayer, but I changed it. It's, okay. it's God me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the one I can and the wisdom to know it's me. Mm, I love that. And then there's the other one, which is every day when I wake up, right? When I wake up, it's the first thing I say. I got on my knees today and I said it today and I say it very slowly so I make sure I hear every word. And it goes, for yesterday is but a dream, tomorrow only a vision, but today, well lived, will make every yesterday a dream of happiness and every tomorrow a vision of hope look forward to this day. I love that one. I haven't heard that. That's gorgeous. When I'm in the moment and I don't know what's going on, I'll go, I'll look in the mirror and I'll say, when you get what you want and you struggle for self and the world makes you king for a day, just go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. For it isn't your brother or sister or wife whose judgment upon you must pass. For the person whose verdict counts most in your life is the one staring back from the glass. Mm. Please, never mind all the rest. For with, they're with you clear up to the end and you pass your most dangerous, difficult task if the man in the glass is your friend. You may fool the whole world on the pathway of life and get pats on your back as you pass. But your final reward will be heartaches and tears if you've cheated the man in the glass. Hmm. I'm not God. I'm just a finger on his hand. So I, I have to remind myself that because if I know that, then I'm just here to do a mission. And if I know that. Okay. I got you now. Okay. So we lost JC, but we're going to wrap it up right now. So he is back on track with me, but we're, we're doing this via a different version of technology. So. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, look at this. Okay, hi. Okay, so you're not plugged in on FaceTime, so you're just on my phone. You see? Hi. Um, <laughs> okay, so it died. That's a bummer. Okay, so then listen. So we're gonna. Um, it's died. It must be. It's time. It's time, my love. Um, okay, so then. Let's leave everybody. So this song is awesome. Never enough. I don't. I'm going to find out who wrote the song, but it's in the Greatest Showman, and JC James Michael Cummings is here. And thank you so much for spending all this time with us. And I'm going to put all of the ways to find you. How can people find you and what you're up to, JC? Uh, they need a private investigator. Perfect. Have to go to climb into this box. <laughs> I'm unfindable. That's the best thing about. You're on. Uh, no, I don't know. You find me the way you find everybody. Just Google it. All right, we'll Google you and and check you out and check out all your good stuff. And then your your nonprofit journey forwardorg We can you know put that up there in the show notes and let everybody know where they can find. Uh, so the bottom line is with that, real quick. My brother was told he'd never feed himself again. Wow. And uh, I took four years of my life, gave it to him 100. percent Brought him out to California. Uh, four years later, he got up and he walked out of that place in a walk and he's gone back, started a nonprofit together. It's now the number one spinal cord injury facility in the country. 
it's in Canton, Massachusetts, www.journey-forward.org. I love it. That's that's a dream come true to hear that your brother got up and walked after they thought he was never even going to eat and feed himself again. So that's a total win. So, wow, JC, thank you for doing that. I bet that's got to feel amazing. Well, DJ Val, you're an amazing person, and I'm sure that your audience is tuning in because of that. So I, I really appreciate getting to be a part of this and, you know, just, just talking about this journey and we'll do it again. Yeah, we'll do it again. You're so sweet. Thank you so much. And happy, happy, uh, what is it? Monday. It's manifesting Monday, everybody. So today right. we're manifesting good stuff and big dreams. Manifest, manifest. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy holidays. Onward. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, hon. Okay. All right. Aloha. All right, Dream Jockeys, get your way over to djvaleriebelove.com forward slash 013 Fierce Belief to get your free downloadable dream sheet for this week's experiment. And the experiment is writing down all the times that you are believing in yourself. So again, it's this fierce, fierce, fierce belief and determination and this fuck yeah-ness, okay? And so if you're not catching yourself doing it, make it a practice. Write it down every morning. I believe in myself. I can do this. Look in the mirror. Do a practice. So figure out what works for you and check off the boxes that you're doing it and notice how you're feeling. Okay. So that's it. Rock and roll. I'll see you guys next week. Epic. Thanks again for listening to this awesome Big Dream School podcast. If you received any benefit and you like it, it would mean the world to me. If you could please take a moment to send us a review on iTunes and subscribe. It will help us get this message and these tools out there to all of the big dreamers like you. Thank you again and many, many blessings to you in your day. Aloha.